0: Hey folks, welcome back to the and Coffee Cast. I'm your host, Pete Steele.
1: And I'm your other host, Rick Hendricks.
0: And we are all about talking about playing games in public, just attacking those stereotypes that gamers are asocial and simply nerds, because it's just not true. So let's get into it.
1: All right, yeah, let's bring some new people into the hobby and uh, keep people who are here having more fun. Yeah.
0: We do want to acknowledge our producer, Keegan King, as well as our behind-the-scenes uh, editor of all things and the social media manager, Sarah Vassa, as well as our game enthusiast consultant, Miss Shaw. And this episode, we're going to be talking all about the tactile nature of tabletop games and gaming versus video games. And while I say versus video games, what I really mean is as opposed to the tactile nature of video games because video games are tactile as well. You just hold a video game controller in your hand or use a keyboard with a computer and you'll realize that those gaming mediums are tactile as well. I mean, just pick up an Xbox controller versus a PlayStation controller and you can tell right away, hey, these have a tactile component.
1: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the Atari 2600 controller... And the NES controller, the NES controller, Sega Genesis, these were all very intentionally designed to have a particular feel. So this is an important element, both of video games and board games. It's just an important design element, and it comes up all the time.
0: But we're going to focus on board games, because this is a board gaming channel. If you insist. I do. So here's the thing, is that when we're talking about board games, and I'm going to pick one, I'm going to pick backgammon. You can actually play backgammon with nothing but an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper, if you have a pen or a pencil, a few six-sided dice, and just 90 cents in the correct amount of pennies and nickels. You can play. That's all it takes.
1: That is all it takes.
0: And I have a much nicer backgammon set because I really enjoy playing the game that has felt and faux leather and faux ivory pieces not real leather or ivory because I'm not a monster. And while having playing with the paper and pen and 90 cent version of backgammon might seem suboptimal to a number of people who prefer the nicer components, it is possible to play that way. You can play in a cafe without having any forethought of bringing the game with you. And chess
1: is the same way. Chess works with just a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper a pen or a pencil scraps of paper with the names or abbreviations of the pieces scribbled on top of them and in fact people have played this way by mail you know for years and years now has the disadvantage of not standing up very well to powerful gusts of wind
0: no can't play in the park can you no
1: (laughs) that way no unless you want to play a very different game
0: more akin to 22
1: pickup but uh Despite the fact that you don't really need anything to play these games, we have some very nice chess sets out there. Made of plastic, made of wood, Uh, some of it are even made of stone. Some of them are even themed. The Civil War ones and the the, uh, Lord of the Rings ones and, you know, I'm sure all sorts of things. Because it's just a lot of fun to hold these things in your hand and feel the weight of them.
0: I guess when it comes to chess, kind of the ultimate in chess components is when you have a large enough board in the park and you have 16 players per side that actually take up the role of the individual chess pieces. And then you have someone who says, move here, move here. And you're actually moving human beings around as your chess pieces. Mm -hmm. And I've done that a couple of times and it is so much fun. Maybe that gives you more insight into my psychological profile than I really is ideal. but. That's kind of the ultimate chess piece is a human being.
1: Swells the head just a little bit? Just
0: a little bit. (laughs) But if you lose, then you have 16 of your pieces that are pissed off at you. And you owe them pizza either way.
1: Well, okay. Uh, That's a decent trade.
0: Yeah. So speaking of premium components, and we're not advocating for the buying and selling of human beings, that's never okay. There is an entire industry related to the tabletop gaming industry of upgraded tabletop components. Mm -hmm. So when you buy a tabletop game, you get a box, and you get kind of what are known as the core set of components, or the base components. And depending on the production of the game, these can kind of be lower quality components, they can be mid-grade, or they can be premium components, and it all depends on the version of the game you buy, kind of the vision of... The publisher, as well as the game designer, and so on and so forth,
1: and where they're setting their price
0: point, and where exactly where they're setting their price point is really the biggest variable. I
1: mean, you, you, it, We all love solid gold boards, but uh, being accessible to more than three people is also a very important uh, part of designing a board game.
0: It sure is. Yeah, you're not you're not going to have very many customers for thousand dollar board games, as
1: especially that they've never played before.
0: Especially if they have ever played before, right? Talk about try before you buy. Yeah. That being said, there is this market for upgraded board game components. Either you're just buying premium tokens, and we'll get into that, or buying sets of components for a specific board game that are higher quality than come in the base game. Mm -hmm. So you can be replacing cardboard or plastic tokens with metal coins, there are, uh, p- are people who replace printed cardboard tokens with painted resin tokens. People may replace plastic dice with metal dice, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to specifically, just as an example, talking about paying money to turn fake plastic money into fake metal money, you know, why would people spend real money on buying more realistic fake money, for their games of fictional worlds, right? To an outsider, this seems like an absurd use of one's resources, one's money.
1: A little weird when you think
0: about it. It's a little weird when you think about it, right? But the reality is, is that people who are invested in these games very clearly see value, true value, in spending real money to make their fictional worlds seem just a little bit more real. Often through upgrading the tactile visual and even auditory experiences that they're having while they play and I will I have to say that there is nothing quite like hearing metal coins clank together in your hands as a result of you doing some sort of brilliant wheeling and dealing in a game I and mean, it's just so satisfying
1: I gotta agree it's a lot easier to feel like a pirate when you have actual treasure right as opposed to Cardboard, but uh, as we were talking about last episode, board games tell stories, and the components that they're made of help tell that story, help set the mood for players interacting with them. Again, you know, having these higher quality tokens and pieces can elevate the entire experience, and it it, it helps bring you into a into the world that you're inhabiting a lot more deeply. And stepping back from Premium components, just the type of components that you use, control how the game feels quite a bit. Magic the Gathering uses cards, but it would have a very different feel if you just rolled dice to decide how your combat went.
0: Just rolling dice and look them up in tables to see the result, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The tactile feel of the cards and playing the cards, shuffling the cards, drawing the cards, has a huge impact on how players interact with the game components and the game itself. Even if it
1: were mathematically identical, thanks to the tables. Right. It's a very different feel. Right. And games are a lot about how we're feeling.
0: Games are a lot about how we're feeling, yeah. And the cards are the controller, where the Xbox controller is the controller for Halo or whatever you're playing.
1: Exactly. They're the the point of intersection between you and the game.
0: And I would call that, I'm going to geek out just a little bit, and say, that is the player point of contact to enter the possibility space of the game. All right. I I won't say more about that right now. (laughs) We can talk about possibility space and gaming in some future episode. All right.
1: Yeah, we'll get into it.
0: Let's talk about some components. So there are board game supply companies. There are dozens of them. Um at least dozens of them, but I'll give a shout out to just a few of them that I have been a very, very satisfied customer and have gone back multiple times. This is not a sponsored plug. They don't know that I'm doing this. They're not paying me. I just want to give a shout out to Top Shelf Gamer, They have premium resin, plastic, and metal game components. You can get them for just on speculation if you want to just like, hey, check out a component, and um, they're kind of fun toys to play with. But they also have game-specific box insert storage solutions. They have game-specific upgrade packs for games like Furnace, Terraforming Mars, Arkham Horror, the card game, Wingspan, and dozens of other games. A second company that I would mention is Meeplesource. They have hundreds, hundreds of printed and unprinted Meeples, painted and unpainted Meeples, and other wooden, plastic tokens.
1: So Meeples, those are the uh, those are the wooden tokens that are sort of cut out in the shape of a stick figure. Yes.
0: Yes, exactly. That's what those are. Yeah, and you can get them in different sizes. Kind of the standard size is 16 millimeters high, but there are larger sizes and even smaller sizes. Mm-hmm. The third company that I want to shout out specifically is The Game Crafter, and they have many different categories of board game components from boxes, to spinners, to dice, to tokens, to cards, to again, meeples, miniatures, you name it, they have it in some quantity or amount. and. These are great sources to upgrade the games that you own, but you can also use them to prototype your own game designs by buying from these board game supply companies.
1: And and playing around with them a little bit,
0: sure. I just playing around, yeah.
1: I mean, you certainly don't need to do that if you're trying to port- prototype a game. No, you don't. There should certainly be a, a stage at the beginning where you're just stealing from the Monopoly board or, you know, trying to get a bare bones thing out there and see see what your friends think of it.
0: Oh, absolutely. Like much much more important to get a full workable copy of the mechanics of your game than finding premium components. For sure. Right. But if you if you want to do this, you certainly can. It's Oh, sure. It's not needed for prototyping.
1: Now, if you're trying to publish your game, you're going to get into this this I- issue we talked about before where the components can be a big part of the cost. Yes. And especially if you're trying to publish it yourself, you're going to have to keep that cost low initially.
0: Right. So this can actually be a trap, because if you go to one of these premium board game supply companies while you're prototyping a game and you buy premium components, if you buy premium components to prototype with and you fall in love with the look and feel of these components, that can be dangerous. Because in all likelihood, if you are fortunate enough to get a to a point where you can publish your game, almost universally, it will not be published with these premium components. You will have to downgrade those components. So that's another reason to not prototype with premium components, unless you really realize that's not what you're going to have at the end.
1: And again, you can always release another edition or packs if and when your game takes off. Right. So you can also find a lot more of these game companies uh, by looking on Board Game Geek under Gaming Bits Suppliers or just Googling. There are, again, as Pete was saying, there are thousands of them.
0: Thousands? I don't know about thousands. Maybe. Oh, maybe. Many. Many, many. Many. Maybe you've looked more than I have. (laughs)
1: Let's talk about some different types of game components.
0: Let's talk about that.
1: So first off, we have your game board. You know, this is the the base that you start with. These can be very simple. They can be made out of cardboard. They usually are. But there are usually options to upgrade them. Certainly for games like D&D, role-playing games, you have upgraded 3D game boards that lock together and fit into a dungeon, complete with walls and pit traps and stairs and a lower floor. You've got to lift the current level off to see. You can dive really deep into... (laughs) into that and it's really cool. Another variation is sailing ships. There are companies that will sell you a model's ship that you can have your miniatures run around on or a flat ship board. It's even better if you've got two of them and they're moving in relation to each other and it's like a boarding action. These can be made out of painted cardboard or plastic. Sometimes players make them themselves out of foam or clay or other materials. It can really elevate the dungeon over your other environments in the game. Because if you have taken time to put something out that's a set piece, your players say, oh, okay, so this place is important. And they start really paying attention.
0: And I'm glad you mentioned that, Rick. Your players start paying attention because when we're talking about the game board in board gaming and tabletop gaming and just a few episodes ago you and I were talking about different types of tabletop games where not all tabletop games have a game board, right? Right. But when they when they do and talking about player attention, when I when I first unfold a game board, I'm fascinated by questions such as, "Okay, where does the designer want me looking? Where does the designer Hope that I'm looking, intend me to be looking, and am I actually looking there? Is that what has my attention and my gaze?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Versus, is my attention on my player board and should it be there? Is that going to be more helpful to me? Is that going to facilitate gameplay if the game has a player board, right? Which has references and stats to help me play potentially and sure, depending on the game, whatnot. But I have played many games where the intended point of focus is the game board, but that's not where players look. And that can be because of poor art, or it could be because of poor flow, or it could be because it's the least compelling component due to low quality where the miniatures or whatever else are higher quality, blah, blah, blah.
1: If you handed somebody a nice little figure to fidget with, that might not be the best choice if you want them looking at the board.
0: Right. So let's talk about another component that hopefully captures players' attention when they come into play. And that's dice. Especially in role-playing games. Oh yes. So when somebody is chucking dice, if the game is designed well, and I get I know I'm gonna get into trouble with that kind of blanket term. <laughs> players are gonna care about the result of those dice. And hopefully not just the player that's rolling them, but everybody.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, there's this whole culture around dice. In all sorts of tabletop gaming, especially role-playing. Oh yes. And this idea of of dice superstition. You've heard of this, I'm sure.
1: I, I have. And and I have uttered many a prayer waiting for that waiting for that die to stop rolling.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, players and game masters have their own sets of dice or multiple sets of dice and uh sometimes if you're playing a role-playing game a specific character has their own set of dice and i i have seen players who will roll up a paladin in dungeons and dragons and they will buy a dice set specifically for that character and when that dungeons and dragons campaign is over and i say dungeons and dragons but it can be any role-playing game. sure yes and when that campaign is over those dice are retired. They're thrown away or they're destroyed or they are donated or whatnot, but they are never again to be rolled in gameplay, never again to see the light of day.
1: No, you you can't use your paladin's dice on a warlock. You just can't do it.
0: You can't do it, right?
1: Disrespectful to your paladin.
0: It is. It is. I mean and a warlock can't wield them, right? know we're kind of geeking out here yeah yeah but i will say that earlier today before we were recording because we happened to be recording on black friday mm-hmm. i went to a game store this morning for their black friday sale and this game store which i'd been to before you know has an entire counter a glass counter full of metal dice
1: Ooh. There's a reason they lock them up or they would all be gone.
0: There's a reason they lock them up. And there's a person, there's a sales associate standing behind this counter. And there are customers looking down, pointing at dice sets that they want to see. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that for the first time, it hit me this morning, for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. this is the exact same sales associate customer dynamic for custom dice as it is in a jewelry store buying $3,000 engagement rings. Oh, that's so interesting. It's the exact same dynamic, like the exact (laughs) same. It's like pointing something, pull that out. I want to see that one, tell me about these dice. And of course these dice don't cost anything close to that. These dice cost, you know, between 20 and $50 a set. Right but the culture and interaction is exactly the same as it is in a jewelry store.
1: Right. And it's,
0: I, I was struck by that. I wanted to mention that.
1: It makes perfect sense because yeah. instead of having resale value and you know, lifelong commitment tied to them, dice have luck tied into them. You know, in, in, in a deeper way than is actually real, but if you have a lucky dice set, that will change your entire experience of the game. It just will. And, and you were talking earlier about dice superstition. Yes. There is a, a trend of punishing dice that have been bad. <laughs> that
0: have been bad. <laughs> that, that killed you.
1: You were trying to dodge the dragon breath and it rolled a one. So you pop it in the freezer or you put it in the microwave and you melt it or you crash it. In front of their friends, as an example.
0: Yes. And this could be quite ritualistic.
1: <laughs> yes. And, and I obviously don't believe in any of this. That said, Pete, you can't touch my dice.
0: I mean, w- what would you do if I did? <laughs> I would go buy new dice. Yeah, no.
1: I would say, oh, yeah, these are yours now. Uh, Next time, please use my learner set. Right. You've got your cooties your on them, and uh, I need no dice.
0: I mean, I would never touch another gamer's dice without permission. I mean, that's just poor etiquette. Yeah. And, of course, I mean, we're probably going to get tons of hate comments for this, but being a statistics nerd, I do not believe in luck.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The odds are the odds. But at the same time, I still have my orange D20 Dungeons and Dragons from the first dice that I ever bought mm-hmm. from 30 years ago. Yep. And I won't let anyone else touch it. It's it's one of my most treasured gaming possessions.
1: Right. Even though you could get, you know, 20 of them for 20 bucks, but right. it doesn't matter. This one's yours. Doesn't matter.
0: This one's mine. This one's mine. I'm never giving it up. Unless it's bad. Then we'll see. Then we'll see. Yes. So related to, I mean, in some ways, and we'll get into this in a minute, related to dice in some ways and not in other ways, another component is bags.
1: Oh, yes. Um, Having a a nice bag in your game can make a game feel special. It can also make a certain component feel special. You know, a lot of role players will have a plush bag for all their dice, uh, Crown Royal bags from the alcohol are really prized for this because they have this nice royal look and feel. And, and it's just a nice way to say, okay, this is a part of my game that's important. I just didn't just put it in a Ziploc. There's some, some gravitas to it.
0: And this is just another version of premium components. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, around bags, well, I'm, I'm gonna say a couple things one related to dice is that one way to get around custom dice so many board games have custom dice that don't don't have pips or numbers on them but have special symbols or whatnot Mm -hmm. and this is a huge way to sell board games because many gamers love custom dice but there's a problem with custom dice in that once a designer makes custom dice they are unless unless they are very very clever mm-hmm. they have kind of committed themselves to those being the mechanics and rules of the game when they release future expansions so they have to tailor future expansions to those custom dice right
1: so there's a there's a Star Wars game I'm not sure which one but it has a, a rebel symbol on three of the faces and a Empire symbol on the other three of the faces. So if you want to add a third mechanic, well, you're out of luck. That's
0: right. not how the dice work. Unless you want to sell a whole new set of custom dice in your expansion, which A, costs money, and B, is considered sloppy design. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. So a way to get around this is if you have tokens in a bag and you just have players pull out tokens at random, you know, blindly— then that can kind of simulate a custom dice and it's easy to modify because you can add tokens in, you can take tokens out to make a game easier or more difficult by changing the odds.
1: Sure. Uh, That's used sometimes in uh, in LARP, actually. Is it really? Yeah. So if you're a spellcaster with a particularly not reliable spell, you might have a bag at your waist that has a certain number of white stones and a certain number of black stones. And if you pull a white stone, it the attack goes off, and if you pull a black zone, you lose the mana and the attack didn't work. Okay. And, and and it's helpful particularly for LARP because you have occasionally advancement. So as you get better at casting the spell, that ratio of stones in the pouch might change. Okay. Whereas you can't really do that so much with a die. With a die, yeah.
0: right. Well, you learn something new every day. You have to take me out on a LARP at some point.
1: I, I do not tempt me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, This is one good reason to learn about games, because games do tend to steal elements from one another all the time. Shamelessly. Why solve a problem that somebody else already solved in your own bad way when there's always already a perfect solution somebody came up with? And it really just ends up with better stories for everybody, in my opinion.
0: Oh, it sure does. It sure does. I do want to mention a couple of problems that I have with bags as a board game component and board game mechanic. Sure. And some people may share this opinion and others may disagree with me, and that's great. So as a mechanic, I'm going to start with that one. Reaching into a bag and pulling out tokens or other components, to me, does not have anywhere close to the excitement and drama of chucking dice. mm And I'm not saying that I am a drama adrenaline junkie. I'm also saying that I think pulling tokens out of a bag for many games that employ bags really disrupt the flow of the game. I see. And, you know, your mileage may vary, but I think they disrupt the game, the flow of the game more for me because so I I have kind of abnormally large hands. I have found that many bags that come in board games don't really fit in my hands and I kind of have to force my hand in and out of the bag. And that, I mean, A, that just, it's not a nice feeling. Right. And B, it adds to the time it takes to pull tokens out of the bag, which disrupts the flow of the game. Sure. So that's, you know, a me problem, but it's certainly not unique to me.
1: Certainly. Yeah. It's it's something they probably didn't intend. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Scrambling around in there with two fingers because that's all you can fit in. Right. I could see where that, where that would be
0: quite annoying but smaller bags are cheaper to produce and cheaper to store in the box
1: right that's the other thing is the more space you have to allow in the box the bigger your box has to be and
0: right yeah that's enough okay so now i'm going to go on a little short little soapbox i have found in my experience is that games that use bags have poor storage solutions in that when i try and once i unpack the game for the first time when i try and repack it it's hard to roll or fold the bag in a way that makes the board game box top fit as snugly as it was intended. Uh,
1: which is important for you because you have 3,000 games and they all have to stack ne- neatly or there isn't enough space for them.
0: <laughs> I don't actually have 3,000 games, folks. But yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a many. Sure. So let's talk about cards as a board game component. I think I've mentioned this before. I know you love some cards, yeah. You know you know, I love some cards. <laughs> um, they're stories in a stack. They're stacks of possibility. They have variable players that you can pull into your hands. I think they're a great way to organize narrative content. I tend to prefer cards over pages and pages of narrative content. I think they're more digestible. Mm-hmm. I tend to prefer prefer standard-sized cards and tarot-sized cards over mini-cards and over oversized cards. Um, I mean, some board games do need to use mini-cards or oversized cards just because of the amount of information or because you need to display many of them, and Mm -hmm. so mini-cards are better for that because of table space. But when a board game uses mini-cards to save a dollar or five... 10 times out of 10, when that is clearly the sole reason why they do that, 10 times out of 10, I say, I would have very quickly paid an additional $10 for this game if you had used standard size cards over mini cards. Not everyone's going to agree with that either, but that's me.
1: Yeah, and cards are an interesting way to, I mean, first of all, they... Easily facilitate secret knowledge. You know what's in your hand, your opponent does not. Right. And I know that's a a mechanic you very much enjoy. Love it. And I enjoy it quite a bit as well. It's also a good way to limit the number of choices that someone has, which helps in keeping the game moving. Mm -hmm. you, You stay away from choice paralysis because you're only allowed to have seven cards in your hand. So you only have seven choices. But you also have especially in card builders, sort of choice paralysis on the front end, where you can figure out what your choices are going to be. Very interesting mechanic.
0: Yes, absolutely. And there's so many possibilities.
1: Yeah, I do love those little bits of flavor on every card. and yeah.
0: Oh, I do too. It just helps, helps immerse you in the world and the story. I, I didn't get my start in board gaming with uh, customizable and trading card games. I played games for a number of years before they came out in the early 90s. But once customizable and trading card games came out, I was hooked for life. So I definitely do have a special bias and place in my heart for stacks and stacks and stacks of cards. <laughs> sure. Yeah.
1: So let's move on to uh, dice cups. Okay. So these are the uh, you know these are the cups that you roll your dice in, and it's it's a very satisfying feel to do that for certain games. It's a very different feeling than just grabbing the uh, the dice and throwing them. It's also a great place to add a bit of theme back into the components because you've got a lot of real estate to work with. So if you want to sculpt a monkey or a tiki head or something like that on the surface of it, it's a very easy way to tie it into the rest of your game. Mm. These are occasionally upgraded into dice towers, which do mostly the same thing, only instead of shaking them, they sort of stand there and you drop it into the top and the dice get jumbled around and they fall into a tray. So they can hold even more theme and gravitas. And if you do it properly, it can really change the way you feel about rolling dice, even if the mechanics are
0: exactly the same. Right. So let's talk about miniatures. Let's talk about miniatures.
1: There are plenty of print- pre-painted miniatures available. A lot of them are game-specific. But if you don't mind a certain amount of dimension-hopping, or uh, imagination, you can cram them into games they don't belong in if you like. If you have a character you really love, there are also uh, services like uh, Hero Forge where you can design your own miniature and you can go online and you can poke and prod and and change the stance of of your miniature. This is all free by the way. And then they will 3D print it and ship it to you. And they'll 3D print in color, they'll 3D print it in metal, They'll 3D print it in four or five times the size in case you just want something huge to have on your desk and don't want to play a game with it.
0: It's always nice to have a toy. Always
1: nice to have a toy. And uh, I actually do have a miniature that I had Hero Forge print out of my LARP character. Did you really? I did, yeah. Oh, and by the way, he's got his own special set of dice. I mean, of course. I haven't put him in a game yet, but I bought the dice with him and he's sitting right on top of them right now and he's got a flaming spear and he's got a customized come get some smirk. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. So if you want to put some money towards it, there's there's places to spend your money.
0: So for the customized smirk, did you do a 3D capture of your own face? How does that work?
1: So you're able to I mean it's it's a lot like the sort of Skyrim character creator sort of thing so you can pick the eyes, change the orientation of all of them. And then they had several sliders under the poses for how cocky is this character? How amused is this character? How angry is this character? And so you move these around.
0: So you pick a level. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, and and you can change the, the degree of smirk.
0: That's actually really incredible. You know, we think about having all these options for digital avatars, but you have all these options for a character that you can actually print and have a physical copy of.
1: Yeah. Well, and the other fun thing I didn't actually buy this, but it is fun. There's also a pose that just shows the character
0: dead. <laughs> so if you wanted to be okay, I ha- now na- na- that 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 sold me. I have to get on board now. Yeah. That's amazing.
1: So if if you wanted to be really mean, you could help all of your players make their own custom character and just have a dead version of that character in your pocket for when you finally kill them.
0: That's brilliant. Talk about a game master reveal. <laughs> Moving right past printed versions of dead characters and people and whatnot let's talk about money sure (laughs) so a tremendous piece of the board game component pie is tokens and money and chips and we're kind of lumping these together Mm -hmm. certainly you can subdivide and subdivide and subdivide but if you talk about you know compared to miniatures and cards and dice You know, token money, chips, these are all kind of physical components that kind of you can juggle in your hands. The sky's the limit. Tokens can be overdone. They can be underdone. Make sure your game has enough. Tokens can be made out of plastic, out of cardboard, out of metal, out of pewter, and so on and so forth. I mean, for a prototype type game that you're making, tokens can be acorns. Mm Mm-hmm. Or whatever. Or just quarters. They're cheap. Or just quarters. They're, well, they're 25 cents a piece. Yeah. Moving right along.
1: But yes, you, you mentioned you should have enough. And that's very important. If you're actually publishing your game and you have about 20 or 30% more money than you think people are going to need, that's probably about right. That's probably about right. People are going to lose money. And you really don't want to do the thing where, oh, well, we've got most of the money in nice money and then somebody is scribbling on a piece of paper for the rest of it
0: right and some board game rules will say hey if you run out of tokens in this game just use anything else use quarters or pennies or acorns or whatnot and that's useful information because what that means is okay the tokens for this game are not limited because for some board game designs you want to limit the number of tokens that are available to have in play. And that's important mechanically often. And other times it's important mechanically for the tokens to be unlimited. And sometimes the board game designer just didn't consider that and that's poor design.
1: It's, it's interesting because a game we all know, Monopoly, does that both ways. The houses are limited. How do you mean? If all the houses have been built, you can't build a house until somebody tears down the house.
0: Yeah, oh yes, okay, correct.
1: But the money is unlimited. Right. And it's very specifically spelled out of this is how we want it to work.
0: And I would say two things about this. One, designers and publishers playtest your games, and if you run short of tokens in more than one out of 100 games, add more tokens and we'll pay more for those games. And two, whether or not tokens are limited or unlimited, any compo- tokens or any other component, you need to specify in your rules whether tokens or other components are limited or unlimited. Make that very clear. There is no default. You need to state this either way. I think this needs to become a new standard in board game rule books. Make this clear to your players.
1: I can agree with that. So you can't talk about game components without talking about pens, pencils, paper, score pad.
0: You cannot.
1: <laughs> it feels a bit basic, but there's basically nothing you can't accomplish with it. And it, it's a part of many games. Don't overthink it. If it's just easier to have your character's tally mark points, there's no need to make a, a huge, expensive abacus to you know, solve that problem.
0: Right. I mean, you can, I mean, you can play tic-tac-toe and a number of other more complicated, interesting games on the beach if you have a stick of your finger and just draw a board game in the sand. I mean, that's essentially a pen and paper. Exactly. Right.
1: But if you tried to sell me a tic-tac-toe set with a Zen garden and a, uh, and and a bunch of sand, I don't think I'd buy
0: it. I wouldn't, Buy it, but I would play it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I'd play it once. Sure. To play, say I'd played Zen Garden Tic-Tac-Toe.
1: So these can also be upgraded to a dry erase mat. Yep. Lends a little bit of a more parchment feel. And certainly if you're drawing maps for a role-playing game or something, that's probably where you're going to want to go.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I have three whiteboards in my house that are, you know, two feet by four feet just for that. Mm Mm-hmm. But whiteboards are expensive, so.
1: But not as p- expensive as spending money on paper every time,
0: so. Well, environmentally friendly, which is which, that's it's a whole thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. So let's talk about timers, stand and digital and so forth. Oh, sure. Many games uh, ha- have a time limit component mechanic where you have to complete around a certain amount of time or whatnot. Some games, you can add a speed element, such as chess. I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of a chess clock, Mm -hmm. heard of speed chess, but that's just one of many examples. So you can use uh, metronomes, clicking devices, sand timers, the digital timer on your phone. Mm -hmm. Sky's the limit here, too. They add tension to the game. They add intensity. They add immediacy. I have a problem with sand timers Mm. in that... Cheap sand timers are cheap. You can get them, order a whole bunch of them on on Amazon. But if a developer and publisher use a really cheap sand timer, one they can break, they can clog. But also with sand timers, going back to board games, you know, depending on where a player is supposed to look, Mm -hmm. sand timers don't have an audio component. So you have to be looking at a sand timer to tell that it's run out of time, right?
1: And if you're looking at the sand timer, you're not doing what you're supposed to be timed doing.
0: Exactly. So because technology is what it is, most people have some sort of timer on their phones. And I think that is typically the best way to go because you have an audio component. Sure. People can agree or disagree.
1: Well, it also depends what sort of feel you're going. I mean, I... I Sure. Kind of like the egg timers. Okay. You know, you set them to 30 seconds and then they go click, 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 click. And the clicking is not helpful, but it stresses you out. Right. Uh, in a way that, I mean, I guess just waiting for the ding also will stress you out, but that can can be a fun component to add to the game. Right. Depending on what it is.
0: And even if you don't have a cell phone or watch with a timer, and some people won't, and that's cool, um, if you do have internet access, you can actually just go to Google and Google audio timer and there are countdown timers that you can use in that space for Mm -hmm. free. Or use an egg timer.
1: With Yankee Swaps, we always just used to use your dad.
0: (laughs) That's right. My dad was the anthropomorphized uh, audio timer of those games for Yankee Swaps. So
1: so if the trading went too long, as it usually did when Pete was involved, uh, (laughs) his dad would just look at his watch and start counting down and not look at the trading. And when he got to to one, trading was done and it was it was stopped.
0: Well, you're really just letting out all the family secrets. <laughs> but it's true. I would I would I would add a lot of social negotiation into Yankee swaps. That was my thing. That's what I'm gonna go with. Yeah. That's my defense. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very clearly memorable for you. So
1: you're you're a fun person to make he swap with.
0: For, uh, I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> okay. We'll uh, see if we
1: let Keegan uh, keep any of that in.
0: Player boards. <laughs>
1: sure, player boards. Uh, you were talking about these earlier. This is yeah. akin to your, uh, your video game character sheet. Yes. This is where you keep your stats, your health if you have that, uh, specific rules for your character. Uh, a lot of games will allow you to select one of, say, six characters. And if your character can move twice in a round by doing something, that's where this will live, on the little cardboard spot in front of you. It's it's often nice to have, uh, especially if you have a somewhat complicated turn structure. Yes. You can add that on and say, okay, well, first you have to move, and then you have to do an action, which can be these two things, and then you have to tell the next person it's their turn.
0: And I will say that when I open a new board game, one of the first things I look for and hope for is a player board, just because I enjoy player boards, but a um, a player board reminder card that shows me Turn order, turn structure, phase order, or whatnot, because I think that is such a helpful component, especially for newcomers to the game and games in general. And I think they're becoming more ubiquitous.
1: If I'm looking at your book six times to figure out how my turn is supposed to go, we need to rethink that.
0: <laughs> we need to rethink that, exactly. Um, and it depends a little bit on your audience, but for the most part, we need to rethink that. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say though, you know, I mean, once you, once you learn a game, once you know a game, you won't be referring to that turn order card anymore, phase order card, you'll know it, right? Right. Um, but for player boards that have, you know, tons of different elements of things you really do need to remind yourself of, or if they, you're putting tokens on them and moving them along in different ways, especially in economic games. And there is a game board as well. I always come come back to that question of one where does the designer want players to be looking in order to have a good experience? And B, are players looking there? B, <laughs> one and B, right? One and two. Sure. Are players looking where they should be looking or need to be looking in order to have a cohesive, immersive experience? Right. And this is a very critical but also difficult difficult aspect of board game design.
1: So if, if the you don't if the game designer doesn't want you to focus on cards, they shouldn't give you cards. Of course. Exactly. Because you particularly are going to have your nose right in the cards.
0: I'm gonna be looking at those cards. And you're not
1: gonna notice the board. That's right. It's even more tricky because that varies from player to player, but
0: it does. It surely does. But if a critical component of a game is social interaction and there are expansive player boards. You're not going to have that social interaction because players are going to be looking at their individual player boards, not the game board where the social interaction happens.
1: Planning their next turn instead of paying attention to what's actually going on.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So let's take a left turn and let's talk about costumes.
1: Excuse me, Pete. They're not costumes. They're called garb. Oh, it, it... Costumes are for Halloween. Okay. Anyway, costumes can really help immersion and add to the fun.
0: You you learn something new every day, my friend. <laughs> so anyway,
1: costumes can really help immersion and add to the fun. As a LARPer, I'm very into costumes. Garb? Garb, yes. Okay. With LARPing, it's very complex because you have your own personal needs as a person who needs to drink things and eat snacks every once in a while and carry all this stuff. Yep. And then you have your character needs of, oh, I need to carry along this prop to use my blacksmithing skill I have to have the hammer. And it ends up being a lot of stuff. There's often a, also a, a problem between this footwear looks amazing, but it's really not the best footwear for running through the woods for 36 hours a weekend. So there's some-
0: cold, Cold and wet socks are no fun.
1: If you're gonna LARP, pack more socks. You didn't pack enough socks. Good advice. Anyway, uh, for LARP, it's it's obviously a huge component. But I've certainly played games of D and D where I came in for Halloween dressed up as our players. Mm-hmm. I think I was the dungeon master that year, and I dressed up as a as a bard because I was telling the story, mm-hmm. and it was a lot of fun. If you're willing to be a little silly, they're they're fun things
0: to have. And you know what. If you're not willing to be a little bit silly, like, get over yourself.
1: (laughs) It's a lot more fun if you're willing to step just a little bit away from the elevated notion that you have of yourself, yes.
0: Yes. We have just a couple more game components we want to mention. And one is measuring tools, being rulers and measuring tapes and customized measuring devices. And these are most commonly used in wargaming. Mm -hmm. and miniatures gaming. And they can add or take away from the experience depending on how they're utilized mechanically, depending on the play group, depending on the player. Your mileage may vary, whether it's a measuring tape, a customized measuring tape, a range finder, Mm -hmm. so on and so forth. But these are typically used in Warmbit Gaming where you don't have specific game spaces on the game board but are using a game table with kind of open terrain. So you're trying to decide
1: if this person is close enough to hit with your rifle.
0: Exactly, exactly.
1: So I one hack that I've seen for places that don't care about an exact measurement, but just is this five feet away, is it 10 feet away, 15. They'll just have a knotted string. So you can just count the knots, make the measurement quicker and say, okay, are you in range? Yes or no.
0: I mean, that's what sailors use to measure depth on ships for thousands of years, so why not in wargaming?
1: Never solve a problem a new way without at least considering the way we've been doing it forever. That's right.
0: Okay, Rick, how do you feel about rulebooks and board game boxes? And I don't know why we're talking about these together, but I will say, actually, before you answer my question... Um, these are kind of your first experience with a game. Your first encounter with a game is with the box or with the rule book. Yep. That's the first thing you see. Um, I have seen boxes, the board game boxes, used as a component in gameplay, especially in dexterity games a few times, um, both to positive and negative effects. Yep. But how do you feel about these as components?
1: Well, they're very important. If the board game box isn't doing its job. I'm probably not going to pick up the game unless somebody has already told me, oh, don't worry about it. It's a, it looks a little bland, but it's amazing. Right. Your, your box is advertisement and your rule book is helping you actually play the game. And if either of those are miserable, probably not going to have a very good time.
0: And we talked about this in the last episode with the game Exchange, Mm -hmm. right? We said, this is a very bland box, but don't let that dissuade you. But like you said many times, it will. Right. Because it's your first encounter.
1: And and there are probably a lot of people who didn't pick that up off the shelf purely because of how it looked. Right. And that's kind of sad. It is. Pictures and diagrams can really help the flow of the rules. Sometimes a picture is really worth a thousand words. And sometimes you'll explain something and it makes perfect sense to you, but just adding in a picture, may, oh, okay, now I understand what he's talking about. Right, right, right. So this is another place where you can add, add value to your game if you want to upgrade the rulebook. I've seen some rulebooks that come in color versions or even just a physical version. My LARP rulebook uh, comes as a PDF by default, but you can buy a physical version of it if you want to have something to refer to. Right. And a well-made rule book is a thing of beauty. It really is.
0: It really is. It makes all the difference in the world.
1: And, and it, it, it should be a good reference material and you shouldn't have to read all of it.
0: I guarantee that we will do episodes in the future on how to learn board games, what board game rule books should include and what they shouldn't include, how they need to evolve over time and you know, blah blah blah.
1: I sure hope so because I have thoughts.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> as do as do many board gamers. And they're such there's such a barrier to getting into gaming. And they they don't have to be.
1: No. I think games are getting a lot better now about having YouTube videos or videos on the website to tell you, okay, here's how you play a turn of our game. Right. And and I think that's I think that's the future. That's uh
0: Yeah, and no, it sure is.
1: I mean you can have the rule book, but having a basic idea of what you're looking at before you open up the roll block, that that's priceless.
0: And I have many thoughts as well, and we will get into it. I will say for now that I have played hundreds of tabletop games over my 30 years in tabletop gaming. I'm not gonna be so egotistic as to call myself an expert, but I have played hundreds of games. I will tell you that if there is a how to play video available online, I will watch that first and then read the rulebook, and I find that immensely helpful. Mm -hmm. It does not solve all of the problems, but it is helpful. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the world of wargaming and miniatures components. And I know we've already talked about miniatures a little bit, but let's get back into it a little bit more. All right, Um, And give uh, a couple of resources, because we could do a whole series on miniature components and Whatnot, but there are a couple, or more than a couple, of other YouTube channels that could do this and do do this so much better than we ever could. We're really talking about the arts and crafts aspect.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I don't know if you have any thoughts about that.
1: Exactly. There's there's a lot of craftsmanship going on here in in the painting and detailing of miniatures, of terrain. It, It is a deep rabbit hole. And uh, it's it's one that we don't probably wouldn't do justice to, uh, as well as some other folks.
0: That's absolutely true. So let's just give a quick shout-out to a couple of YouTube channels. And again, they do not actually know us at the time of this recording. I would love to know the creators of these channels, but they did not pay us. They did not ask us to give them a the shout-out. These are just a couple of channels that I have been a fan of for a long time and watch every week. So if you are interested in kind of expert painting techniques as well as large painting projects. I would check out Age of Squidmar. They really do Warhammer 40,000 really well. And they're just... They have a level of showmanship and charisma uh, that's really fun to watch. So check out Age of Squidmar, which is a play on Age of Sigmar, Mm -hmm. which is a games workshop uh, intellectual property. Um, I just, I love it. I mean, I subscribe to their channel. I recommend you do too. I think they're fantastic. I'm a big fan. I'll have to check it out. The other channel that I would recommend you check out is Tabletop Minions. And this is run by one guy. His name is Adam. He goes by Uncle Adam, which is kind of cool—not in a creepy way, in a cool way. Sure, if you say so. No, seriously, (laughs) by the way. But I hear you. No, he's—he's a really cool guy in that he is a dork and a geek, but he has this intellectual charisma about him that. I just find intoxicating. He talks. He talks about. He does a lot of videos about how to get into wargaming and miniature construction and painting. From a beginner level, but he does it and he's clearly been in the hobby for years, if not decades, mm-hmm. but he does it in such a low key, no harm, no foul approachable way that it's, it's just it's so in so easy to engage with him. And I just want to go have a beer with this guy and just talk to him about his experiences. And he also doesn't just have videos on how to paint and how to engage in this hobby and how to engage other people in this hobby, but he also talks a lot about where this hobby is and where this hobby has been and what should be the future direction of this hobby not in a moralizing way but in a how to get the maximum amount of engagement from current players as well to as well as how to engage new players and it's just it's it's really lovely um i can't say enough good things about tabletop minions to be honest
1: so let's get back into our wheelhouse
0: let's get back into our wheelhouse
1: so there are a bunch of types of materials that these uh, board game components come in.
0: There are. So we've been talking about, you know, game boards and dice and dice bags and whatnot. And we've uh, talked a little bit about the different physical materials that they can be made out of. And some components are more likely to be made out of some materials than others. But when you're talking about physical materials, they definitely have a huge impact on... Not only the tactile feel of the game, but the thematic feel of the game, which we talked about last episode. Mm -hmm. Components can be made out of wood or paper or soft plastic or hard plastic or resin. Cardboard,
1: cloth, vinyl, neoprene, metal, pewter.
0: And this is not by any means an exhaustive list, but these are the components that we have found are most commonly make up board game components. Mm -hmm. I wanna talk a little bit about the practice of mixing material types within the same game. Mm
1: -hmm. You always have this tension between quality and cost, but one fantastic piece that the players interact with regularly can really elevate the experience. I think that's why dice are so important In Dungeons and Dragons, because it's the it's the thing that your players always have in your hands Mm -hmm. and having an amazing set of dice that's just sparkly or weighty or textured or however, whatever gets you going. Right. That can really get you into your character, despite the fact that the rest of the game is being played on paper that you're not even allowed to look at because the DM won't let you. Right. So yeah having having a really good piece with a bunch of stuff that is cheaper is not a terrible strategy. I've actually seen this done a lot in Halloween costumes. You'll have one piece that's supposed to be the focus and that will be fine and pretty decently made. and then the rest of it is junk that will fall apart by the end of end of the night, but that one piece really helps out what what components really? excite you when you get to interact with them. I know we've already talked about cards, but... uh.
0: Related to that, when I pick up a board game box, I mean, the first thing I see is, you know, the visuals either the side or the front, depending on how it's oriented in a store. If I'm in a brick and mortar store, which I try and be as much as possible, Mm because I really believe in supporting local retailers. Right. I really enjoy when a board game box has weight to it because that typically means there's a huge deck of cards in there. Not always, and I I certainly have bought and owned my fair share of, co- of board games that are lighter, and they can be fantastic games. But I will say that's something that sucks me in because, as you know, I love those big stacks of cards.
1: I am getting flashbacks to the... Uh to the Yankee swaps. <laughs> I feel like you weighed every every box that you got your hands on.
0: I weighed them. I shook them. I mean, mostly just for attention. Again, another insight into my psyche.
1: Oh, sure. We'll, we'll unpack that later. <laughs>
0: Um, Maybe we'll do that offline Um, Sometimes more is not better Sometimes more is really just more And that's another level of discernment That is important to develop For you and for your gaming group Because it looks different for everybody over time I hear you What about for you? What components do you prefer? What what draws you in? What do you get excited about?
1: So for me, I love When components mesh with the story Especially if they do it in a clever way. I've got one game that I wanna talk about here. Uh, it's called Dread, and it's a horror game by The Impossible Dream, which is just a good company name. Let's let's uh, give them some credit there. It no, sure is. Anyway, Dread uses a Jenga tower, or I think if you talk to them, it's legally distinct from a Jenga tower, but it is a
0: Jenga tower. It's a tower of, tower of wooden blocks. Of
1: wooden blocks of uniform size that are legally distinct from Jenga. And what the tower does is it portrays tension. Uh, In a usual role-playing game, if you're trying to accomplish something, you'll roll a die to see if you can manage it or not. Mm -hmm. In Dread, you don't do that. Instead of rolling a die, you have to pull from the tower to complete each different action. Okay. Sometimes each action will be broken down by the DM into multiple pulls. So, for example, if you're sneaking away from the monster, you might have to spend one pull from the tower to open the door silently and a second pull to close the door behind you silently. Oh, I like that. And you could fail at either one of those steps. But this is sort of the, the job of the DM is you say, oh, well, I go through the door silently. And he's like, uh-uh-uh, this is a high t- tension situation. Now, in either one of those cases, you could refuse to pull. You could say, ooh, that's really... That looks like it's coming down, so I guess I just won't open the door. Well, then you can't go through the door. It's not open. Okay. Well, maybe I'll open the door. But either I won't close it, or maybe I'll just slam it shut and lock it that way. And sure. Suddenly the monster is running after you, but you didn't have to pull from the tower. But the important part of the tower, of course, is when the tower falls, you die. And that's just it. That's just it. The 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 person who makes the tower fall always dies Or worse. So if you're playing in like a Cthulhu universe, you might go insane and become a cultist. But the point is your character is not coming back. So the tension sort of ramps up and up and up and up as you manage crazier and crazier things as you're trying to get away, until somebody dies. Okay. And then once somebody dies, you rebuild the tower, and there are rules for how you do that and how many spaces you leave and all that jazz. And then everybody who's left has an easier time for a bit. And uh, unfortunately, Keegan isn't here, but this is how horror usually works in movies and other places, is you ramp up and up and up and up in tension, and then somebody ends up staying behind to... Guard the door, or maybe it's not so altruistic as that. Maybe they just caught him and they're feasting on him, and while they're feasting on him, y'all skedaddle and
2: uh, you have an easier time for a bit. But yeah, it's a little,
1: it's a really fun system for. Uh, games with horror or with wild, corrupting magic or things where things could really go bad at any moment. Anyway, so you 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 love the weighty
0: cards. I do.
1: Are there any components you don't
0: care for? You know, I have a hard time, and this isn't just about components. This is also about mechanics, to be fair. Mm-hmm. I have a really hard time with tile placement games. There are a few that I have really enjoyed. But when somebody tells me, or when I read on the back of a box, that X game is a tile placement game, I immediately have a yellow flag go up and go,
1: "Oh,
0: I'm not sure this game is for me.
1: Is is it because they shift around on you, or...?
0: I mean, sometimes if the component quality is low, that certainly could be the case. And, I mean, maybe this is more of a mechanic complaint than a component complaint, to be honest. I mean, but at the same time, I will say that if the tile component quality is quite high, I will be more inclined to play it, to be honest. So there's that. But, right. you know, you know, tile laying... Um, Again, both as mechanic and component, I'm like, "Uh, I don't know. But again, some people love playing with tiles and tile placement games. So again, you know, if you love it, go for it.
1: Right, your mileage may vary.
0: Your mileage may vary. The only other complaints that I would mention right now are ones that I I think I voiced earlier in in the episode, which Mm -hmm. is that I have a really hard time with miniaturized cards. Sometimes they are required for a particular game because you have to lay 20 of them out and because of table space, they really need to be miniature cards. Mm -hmm. And I have no problem with that. That's fine. I would much rather be playing with standard size cards or above and would certainly pay a premium price for that. So publishers, please listen to me on this. I will pay 20, 30% more for your game if you include standard size cards rather than miniatures cards, unless they're absolutely required. Sure. I can't stress that enough. At the same time, I don't love cards that are larger than tarot size cards, again, unless they're necessary. And sometimes they are, and -hmm. that's fine. Um, But sometimes cards are just oversized to be oversized. And that is not really fun, they're difficult to wield, and that's again coming from someone who has large hands. And for people who have normal, non-freak hands, they're gonna be even harder to wield. And I would imagine those players would have even more of a complaint, and I would get behind that. Sure. And then again, um, bags and games. I understand that many games really do well with bags, and there are some games that use bags as components and mechanics that I really enjoy. But again, this is a yellow flag for me, mm-hmm. um, per- just personally. Um, I, I There are many games that, because of their bag components and mechanics, that I just don't care for. That's that's me. And again, everyone has their own opinion, and that's great. But yeah, that's me. What about you? What, what components do you just not care for?
1: I mean, the only one that really comes to mind is when I LARP, there are these... Uh, magic scrolls and potions. So the way magic scrolls and potions work in my LARP is you have a a printed out sheet of paper for a scroll and it's written in some sort of a mystical script. So you have to know how to decode that and you have to decode it to figure out what you're even dealing with. So that can be fun. The problem is then you have 15 or 20 of these scrolls and it's very difficult to use them in the heat of battle.
0: So when you say no, you have to know how to decode a script. Mm-hmm. In LARPing, is this is this code given to you? Is this cipher given to you, or is this something you have to discover over the course of gameplay? Or can it depend?
1: It can depend. Uh, I mean, usually the ones I'm talking about, you build your character such that you have knowledge of magic. Okay. And part of having knowledge of magic is you can also pay a little more to be able to read these magical scripts, and they give you a decoder to, to do the decoding with. Which, again, is kind of fun. You do have that secret knowledge thing, which I enjoy, but it ends up being a good deal of work. And when you're looking for your fireball spell and you pull out your healing spell, that might kill you right there. Sure. You know, it also falls into, for me, the same problem that I always have with consumables is I never actually use them. I'm always saving them for a rainy day and they're always weighing down my bag.
0: Well, that that speaks to your play style. <laughs>
1: sure. And and in LARP, that becomes very literal.
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: And and potions are, are similar. So for our LARP, we use a film canister. So a clear film canister, you can see through it. And you're looking at this scroll that's rolled up within it. And it has this little diagram of the potion that you're looking at. So it's, I'm sure it's very exciting for people who actually have the skills, but it will show you how light reacts with it. It will show you if there's any uh, particulates in the bottom. Uh, it'll tell you if it's a powder and what the color is and all that sort of thing. So in theory, you should be able to squint at this thing and figure out more or less what, whether this is a healing potion or a poison.
0: That's an important distinction.
1: Very important distinction. Also, there are some things that are supposed to be spread on your weapon and some things that are supposed to be consumed. And uh, if you spread something you were supposed to drink on your weapon, that's wasted. But again, they just end up taking up a lot of space, and there are a lot of work to sort of decode them and figure out what they are. Yeah, they, they never quite work for me. Fair enough. I, I, I like my wild magic, but only when I'm
0: opting into it. <laughs> When it works for you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So anyway, as I'm talking about these LARP scrolls and the film canisters, it reminds me that we can use things that aren't made for games as game components. Have you ever done any of that, Pete?
0: You know what? I actually have, Rick, and I've done that a couple of times. But as you mentioned it, I remember... I don't know if it's the first time I did it, but it's probably the most prominent time I did this, was 20 years ago. I was DMing a group in undergrad of 12 players, believe it or not.
1: That is a big gaming group.
0: It was a big gaming group. um, And it required a lot of planning and patience on the part of everybody.
1: I've had enough problems with like four (laughs)
0: Oh, yeah. No, four is plenty to have trouble with. (laughs) Like, make no mistake. But I did. I had 12 players plus me as 13th as the DM. But when you have that many players, the number of ideas and the amount of diversity is incredible. Mm hmm. And because we had so many players and because we were in college and we were serious students and serious on getting our degrees and getting our education, we had to set certain boundaries, of course, and we would, you know, work really hard during the week so we could commit one day a week from, you know, noon to 8 p.m. on Sundays to playing our d d group. But also, in addition to that playtime, we also were able to play kind of throughout the week a little bit in very succinct structured ways
1: if you don't make time for it it doesn't happen
0: (laughs) if you don't if it does yeah exactly so my players would find me on campus just walking across campus from class to class or whatever and say oh I was just thinking of this for my character my character does this and I would say perfect great and then I would text the other relevant players and be like oh Jonathan's character Phelon does this. What do you do? And then another character, Karen, like, well, my character, Kassaniya, does this in response to what Jonathan did. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, players would say, can't text right now. I'm in class, you know, I'll respond later. (laughs) And, you know, of course, we would respect that because boundaries. like, you're in class, you can't respond right now. That's totally cool. Go do your thing. Go study for whatever. Sure. But what was really cool about it from a component perspective is having such a large group of players, I would actually use non-game components, like I would go to an art store and get canvases and i would create i would you know take a piece of paper and i would put it in the oven at 350 degrees don't make it 500 it'll catch on fire
1: mm-hmm.
0: but make it 300 degrees and let it kind fahrenheit of fahrenheit
1: 451
0: fahrenheit 451 exactly uh, m- both uh, uh cautionary tale tale in terms of politics and setting paper on fire mm-hmm. um but you know singe paper to make it look like a scroll and I took that scroll and I wrote the secret message on it and I glued it between two um, art canvases and then painted those art canvases with certain symbols and I would hand I handed this component this element to my gaming group and said this both exists in the game for your characters and in the real world for you as players you need to solve the puzzle to you know to get to you know open the door whatever it was that is so cool it was it was very cool and my my players my real world players hmm agonized over these symbols for several months <laughs> and I said hey your pl- your characters can roll ability dice to, to try and figure out this puzzle and they're like no no we have to figure it out we have to figure it out Finally, I think, out of frustration, one of my players, Phil, basically threw this thing against the wall and it broke open, revealing the secret message (laughs) that I had put inside. (laughs) Um, And there was this audible gasp from everybody of, (gasps) you know. (laughs) So this was certainly a type of of breaking the fourth wall, you know, kind of um, confounding player knowledge with character knowledge. But it was also great. Sure. Um, that, that is great.
1: I didn't realize you'd already played LARP.
0: Oh, wow. Hey, is that is that what I did? Pretty
1: much. I mean, you're, you're bringing in a lot of the elements that I love about LARP. You know, the texting between people who are involved in the action going on so that everybody doesn't have to see this interaction between these two people. Okay, that can happen on its own channel and 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 the... Uh, bringing things into the physical world, yeah. Yeah. A lot
0: of fun. Uh, Fair enough. Okay, I was LARPing without even knowing it. That's actually a really good message. Um, I have to think about that more.
1: It's something they taught you to stop doing, and uh,
0: you don't need to stop doing it. You don't need to stop doing it, clearly. I mean, the game was part scavenger hunt. It was part assassin game people who have played a session with water guns or whatnot. Oh, yeah. And what was, really, what was really cool is, you know, because my players would find me on campus, just run into me like, my player does this. I was absolutely living in my players' heads rent-free for the majority of the week, every week.
1: I love how they had this puzzle in real life, and they refused to get rid of it by using their in-character skills. I love that.
0: Which just made the whole experience even better. And again, you can use, you just go to an art store or a hardware store or a pharmacy and you can use almost anything with a lick of paint or Sharpie or colored pencil or none of those at all mm-hmm. and introduce that into a game.
1: Doesn't take much.
0: No. So I'm wondering, Rick, when have you used non-game materials as game materials?
1: There was one time where I was running a D&D game, and I had built up one of these cardboard dungeons with the walls and the spike traps and, you know, some a modular, you know, fun thing. And so what I did is I broke into my copy of the game Khet, K-H-E-T. Yep. Uh, and this is a mirror deflection game, somewhat akin to chess, but you have a, a laser that shines off mirrors and... You use this as a weapon to attack your foes. So anyway, I stole the mirror pieces and I moved them into my D&D dungeon and got a laser pointer and added this in as a new mechanic in the dungeon of you have to shift these mirror pieces around and push them and turn them to uh, get the laser pointer to... I think it was burned through a wall or something. I forget exactly what I was doing.
0: but uh, I mean, what else are you going to do with a laser?
1: Yeah, I, I wasn't going to let them use it against an actual opponent. But, you know, that said, I think your brother was playing. So he may have managed to run the giant scorpion into it. That sounds like something he would do.
0: That, that is. That's definitely him.
1: Uh, this, again, dating myself, this was a while ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, what can you do? So there are... Tons of other types of components that we did not mention in this podcast. You know, what we mentioned is by no means a comprehensive list in terms of types of components or materials that components are made out of.
1: If you do feel so inclined, please reach out and let us know what components you like and dislike and why. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, we sure would. Thank you all so much for listening to the Corax and Coffee Coffee Cast we're going to be discussing many topics in the future next week. Specifically, we're going to be talking about table rules, which are different from house rules. Of course, table rules basically being board gamer and board game group etiquette from, you know, keeping your greasy paws that, you know, just touch that piece uh, away from my stacks of cards or somebody else's miniatures is whatnot and whatnot, as well as learning the rules beforehand, potentially. And again, everybody's, you know, gaming preferences and gamer group rules may vary, but we're just going to be discussing the different possibilities for how to be making a board game group experience pleasant, have good flow, and so on and so forth.
1: For example, we want to discuss how you're not to touch my lucky dice before I have to rip somebody's arm off.
0: Yes, do not touch Rick's dice That will not go well for anybody
1: So, thank you again for joining us Please like and subscribe Please visit our website at www.coraxandcoffee.com And consider supporting us on Patreon Or through our
0: merch store I am your host, Pete Steele And I'm your other host, Rick Hendricks Take care, all
2: Bye You know, listener I think we're destined to do this forever What? What? Too soon for a Heath Ledger's Joker. You know what they say: podcast outros are just tragedy plus time. At least I think that's how the expression goes. Who knows? Anyway, thanks for listening to the Corax and Coffee Cast with your fearless hosts Pete Steele and Rick Hendricks. I'm still Keegan King, being responsible for the music, audio production, and obsessing over milliseconds of audio. Thank you to our other contributors, Sarah Bassa and Ms. Shaw. If you like this podcast, you're welcome. But also, you might like our other content, such as our game unboxing videos, written game reviews, and print and play game content, all available at CoraxCoffee.com. Please also consider following us on social media, signing up for our newsletter for behind-the-scenes photos of me screaming at the editing software, or, you know, real and good stuff, You could also visit our merch store and or become a Patreon supporter in whatever amount you think our content is worth. The quote of the week, I imagined a quiet future in an imaginary world where nothing ever really happened, but everything seemed charged with life. Corax and Coffee, tabletop gaming caffeinated.